Hey, you awesome folks. Thanks for taking this journey of discovery with your guide, Keith Haney. You're listening to the Becoming Bridge Builders podcast, your favorite podcast for everything from racial reconciliation to education innovation, justice reform, and leading change in the 21st century. This podcast is for people who love to be challenged with difficult topics, but want practical solutions to solve these challenging issues. Becoming Bridge Builders makes change possible. Each week on the podcast, Keith invites innovative thought leaders to share how they are building bridges in their area of expertise. You will hear breakthrough ideas and concepts that are changing the world. He's featuring guests who are best-selling authors, leaders at Microsoft, entrepreneurs, leading educators, professors, lawyers, and so many more. Listen in to learn how you can be the bridge to the change you are seeking. My guest today is Dr. Kurt Sinski. He is a founder and principal of CEO Board Services, a consulting firm that specializes in working with mission-oriented organizational leaders and boards around issues of governance, strategy, organizational structure, succession planning, coaching, and mergers and acquisitions. For 23 years, Dr. Sinski has served as Chief Executive Officer of Upbring, formerly Lutheran Social Services of South, a multifaceted, multi-state social agency with an annual operating budget of over $100 million and 1,000 employees, has been responsible for more than quadrupling the size of the agency and steering a once-troubled agency back to financial strength. During its tenure, the organization eliminated indebtedness of $60 million and currently enjoys an endowment of over $40 million. Dr. Sinski completed his undergraduate work at Gordy University of Texas and Valparaiso University in Indiana, majoring in accounting with a Bachelor of Science degree in Business Administration. He holds a Jewish doctorate degree from the University of Illinois College of Law and a Master of Arts degree in International Relations from Schiller International University in Paris, France, with a PhD in Government from University of Texas, Austin. He is the author of five books, The CEO and the Board, The Art of Nonprofit Governance as a Competitive Advantage, Wine in the Word, Savior and Serve, The Calling, Live a Life of Significance, Executive Values, a Christian Approach to Organizational Leadership and Personal Values, God's Game Plan for Life. He's a gifted public speaker. He also is a guest columnist of a variety of issues for newspapers and magazines, as well as regular com- commentator on television, podcasts, and radio. He and his wife, Lori, live in Austin, Texas, and they're proud parents of their daughter, Sydney, and son-in-law, Cody. We welcome Dr. Sinski to the podcast. Kurt, it's good to have you on the podcast. I'm looking forward to this conversation, but I'd like to give my guests kind of an opening question. What's the best piece of advice you ever received? Keith, what's interesting, I think, about my background is that every single person for generations was either a church worker or a farmer. And I knew I had absolutely no talent in being a farmer, but I also didn't want to be a church worker. And I was at Valparaiso University at the time. We were at church. I was home on a break. And my father was talking to another member of the church. And he was jokingly telling them, yeah, my son wants to be a lawyer. And the comment that uh, the person replied, I'll never forget. He said, well, you know, I think the world needs an ethical attorney more than it needs another church worker. 
And I've always remembered that comment because it's, it's, a, it's the understanding that each of our vocations, each of our lives matter. And there is not necessarily a ranking of one better than the other. It's how we use our unique God-given gifts uh, as a part of our own vocation. And so that was the, the piece of advice. Now, God has a funny sense of humor, right? Because for the past 25 years, I've been a church worker. Uh, <laughs> but at the time, I didn't quite know it. That's great. I love that. That's great advice to have someone kind of remind you that we do need Every profession matters and everything that we do has a, a God-given vocation attached to it. So, yeah, knowing that, you know, you have a special, unique place in the world and God can still use you is just kind of a nice reminder for all of us that whenever, no matter what we're doing in life, God can use us where he's placed us to be a blessing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And so I tried to remember that as I was an attorney and then I worked in politics. And, and sometimes it's it's hard to keep your faith strong when you're working in politics. I but bet. Uh, it was always a great reminder to me that my vocation was important no matter where exactly. I was. Exactly. I'm curious, Kurt, as you think about your life, who are some people who served to inspire you and maybe even mentor you along the way? You know, Keith, and, and, and I tend to think of my life in chapters, maybe. So when I practiced law, there was this an attorney who was maybe four years older than me, who no matter how busy he was, he would take the time to mentor me, to answer any question I had, to make sure that I was successful in my own role. He didn't need to do that, but he just took me under his wing. His name was DJ Sartorio and just absolutely loved and respected that individual. I then got into politics, and among the people that I worked for was uh, Governor Mike Dukakis, um, especially when he ran for president. And uh, what I really respected about the governor is that he taught me how you can be an ethical politician and also be a good family man and be a politician, because both of those were pretty rare then and probably even more rare today. Um, and, and, and so I, I found that fascinating. Uh, I took a kind of a, a detour and, and worked at Concordia University in Texas for a few years and had a couple of mentors there, Larry Meisner, Les Bear. Uh, and what they taught me is how to integrate my faith into all aspects of my life. So work, life, you know, home, community, uh, congregation. Um, and then, you know, as I became CEO and served as CEO for a couple of decades, uh, I some ways formed a, a kitchen cabinet. Um, and so people like John Nunes and Paul Miles and my wife were people that I knew I could go to and have that confidential conversation about uh, things that maybe I didn't want other people to know because I needed good advice. And in many ways, they became my kitchen cabinet. Um, and obviously my wife along the way, she has such a strong faith, uh, a former uh Baptist girl growing up who can pray with the best of them and witness with the best of them. We can all learn a lot from her as well. And then finally, obviously, my parents who taught me what it was like to have a great marriage, what it was like to live a life of service uh, as church workers, as teachers, as executives, as administrators. Um, all of those, you know, are the building blocks that uh, resulted in 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 someone like myself then taking that mantle and. Uh, going on with the next generation. I love that. And you've shared a little bit about your personal journey. I'm curious on this journey, what lessons did you learn to help you write, especially this new book on governors? Cause I'm, I served on many different boards and I've discovered that governance is an issue 
not just on boards, but in churches too, that can be either a, a yes. blessing or it can be the thing that ignites a firework storm in a building full of fireworks. So, you know, <laughs> kind of tell us how your journey helps you kind of pour into this particular aspect of the church. Yes. Yeah, so it's interesting. Almost every book I write, uh, I have some experience in it, but I'm also understanding internally that I don't quite have it right. And so I want to build on my experience, but also learn on the lessons that are in the research and in other people's experience, and maybe provide then uh, other people with a blueprint of of how to do it even better. And that was the same with uh, this book, The CEO and the Board. And you know, having served on 13 different boards of directors, having been a CEO, now being a consultant, uh, what I realized is that there is indeed a lot of frustration out there, right? Board members want to make a difference, but they don't quite know how. CEOs get frustrated. Pastors get frustrated because they want their board to be a partner with them in ministry. But oftentimes that feels like a hindrance. And so the question becomes, how do you build your unique governance model for your church or for your nonprofit organization, for your school, that's exactly right for your particular situation. Because every every organization, every church has its own unique culture, its own unique history, its own unique challenges and, and opportunities. And, and my experience has taught me and the research has, has demonstrated that you need to have, uh, you need to create a governance model that, yes, uh, fits the mandates of all the different laws, uh, the, the, the duty of care, the duty of obligation, the duty of, of, you know, fulfilling what you're supposed to do. But after that, create the structure that makes the most sense for your organization. And in the book, I talk about what the research says is most important, and then also provide a scorecard of how do you know whether or not you're actually being successful. I love that. And the thing I've discovered about so many boards I've served on is, you're right, the structure is is very important, especially to fit your particular organization. We love to find a generic constitution and board policies and just adapt and just change the name on it. And then we wonder why it doesn't work. <laughs> yes. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, what, what's interesting to me, too, is if Peter Drucker actually talks about how there's one thing that all boards have in common, they do not function. Um, and he's talking about for-profit boards. He's talking <laughs> about nonprofit boards. Uh, I think uh, John Carver talks about how boards tend to be in, an incompetent group of competent people. And so there is this frustration. And what I've also found is it's actually gotten maybe magnified in the past five years. Now, COVID helped speed this process up, but it actually began prior to COVID, where whether you're a congregation, whether you're a nonprofit organization, the world has gotten just so much more complex and it's requiring a different board. It's requiring a different governance structure. And so I think gone are the days where you can assemble 12 well-meaning people to serve on your board of directors, but you really need to take a step back and say, all right, what are the skill sets that I need on this board? What are the different generations that I might need on this board? What type of diversity makes most sense for our organization? And with the increasing challenges of technology, of maybe a lack of uh, uh, less donations coming in, with increased competition, uh, with a difficulty in retaining and recruiting staff, 
it's more important than ever to not only find the right board members, but then to create that structure and the culture where you're looking forward at least a half of the time to talk about the future, to talk about the strategy, to talk about what are maybe the elephants in the room. You know, in my research, I, I went in with a, with a hypothesis of what I thought I was going to find to only find that there were some some surprises. So what was probably the greatest surprise you discovered in your research that was like an aha moment for you? Yeah, yeah you know, I think, Keith, there are a couple of them. One is I, I intently wrote this book for nonprofit organizations, so private universities, schools, uh, your typical nonprofit organization. What I found after the fact is how this is also so relatable and works for congregations as well. The, 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 the governance issues in congregations are in many ways no difference than the, the governance challenges and opportunities in nonprofit organizations and universities. Congregations are increasingly becoming a pretty complex organization, especially those that maybe have a, has a school attached to it or, or a preschool. And, and so after the fact, I realized that what makes sense for nonprofit organizations actually also makes complete sense for churches as well. And so I'm starting to expand that message because what I'm finding is that congregations are struggling and looking for resources as well because they want to do the governance piece right, but they don't necessarily always quite know how to do it. The other thing I, I found is that almost every organization, no matter those that are doing well or those might be struggling, has in many ways what I call their own elephant in the room. Uh, it may be, you know, increased competition. It may be if you're a school, a charter school that's open down the street. If you're a congregation, it may be changing demographics within your neighborhood. If you're a university, it may be, you know, different competition uh, among uh, your peers. But the what surprised me is oftentimes the unwillingness to at least I, even identify the elephant and then have the courage to wrestle with whatever that elephant is in that trust-filled, blame-free environment where you're all sitting around the table, leadership and board members as partners uh, to figure out how do we get past that. That's a good observation because I've worked with a lot with congregations and I've seen several different governance issues. One of my favorite is the costume was written in 1872 and we haven't changed it since. And we can't figure out why it's not working. You know, it was designed for a church that had 40 <laughs> people on the boards and committees and we're down to a church of 40 and we can't make the governance system work. <laughs> um, yes. Yes. And, and so here's what's interesting, Keith. So I, t I start. I started talking about the challenges tend to be in two different buckets. One is plumbing and the other is what I call people. So plumbing, a great example is what you just brought up, where your bylaws or your articles or your constitution may have made sense for 30, 40 years ago or 100 years ago, but they no longer make sense today. To me, that's a plumbing issue. Or if you have a board meeting and your uh, board agenda is always looking backwards, you're reviewing your financial statements, you're talking about your successes in the past quarter or past year, but you're not looking forward. To me, that's a plumbing issue. There's also what I would call a people issue. And one example of that would be, do you have the right people sitting around the table? And so, for example, I worked with a, a congregation here in Texas, and 
what the new pastor did is, you know, when he came to the church, he found that every member of the board was a third or fourth generation family member of that congregation. And what he also found was that the needs of the long-term members of the congregation are often completely different than a, a member who just joined maybe a couple of years ago. And so he created a little bit of excitement by adding people who hadn't been with the church for more than a generation. But from his perspective, he really only had to have that perspective sitting around the table to really understand what his parishioners need from him and the church to fulfill their their needs. I love that. I've also seen where people have changed governance to give more control to the pastor and less control to the people. And I've walked in congregations where they were used to having input and all of a sudden maybe going to move to a policy-based governance system has now I would say disenfranchised the members. And so there's grumbling because there's a lack of communication. And I've done several uh, self-studies where the, the same issue kept coming up. The same people make all of the decisions in the church and we're not included. So, you know, what do you do when it's, when it's a situation <laughs> where you run into that? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, it's really interesting, Keith, because sometimes a pastor doesn't want to be in charge. And then sometimes the pastor comes in and says, yes, I need to be the, quote, CEO of this congregation from a governance perspective. And so I think the initial conversation that has to occur is what is the most appropriate model for one, this congregation, but also two, for the talents, the skill sets um, and the desires of the pastor. And, and it, it takes that trust-filled room and, and conversation to occur. You know, David Peter from the St. Louis Cemetery has written, or St. Louis Seminary <laughs> has written an outstanding book on the different models of governance for congregations. And so I think the first step is to figure out what the right model is. But then the second step is, all right, what's so unique about our congregation? And let's have this honest conversation about how how should we adapt our governance model to fit the new needs of this congregation? And then also, I, I would strongly encourage every congregation to embark on a conversation about getting that clarity of strategy. What is it? What is the role? What is the mission of our congregation? It may be shepherding. It may be evangelizing. It may be both. It may be also a school, but really having that clarity. And then also understanding that the world is changing so fast that you're probably not going to be able to plan more than several years out. But what are the two or three things you really want to accomplish in those next three years? And then what is that one thing you need to accomplish and want to accomplish in the next 12 months to keep that momentum going? Um, Cause I tell, I tell congregations, I tell nonprofit organizations from a messaging and a marketing perspective, you're not necessarily competing against other churches you're competing for the time and interest of your parishioners against the Nikes and the McDonald's and and the Amazons of the world. And your message has better be as clear as that in terms of who you are and what you're about and what you want to accomplish as a congregation. Love that. And and as a nonprofit organization or a university. One thing I know a lot of organizations struggle with, especially churches is what I call mission drift. And, how do you set your structure up? Because I know you, one of the things you talk about in your bio was how you helped organizations rediscover their mission. And I think so often 
structure can hinder our mission focus, can can make us go mission adrift because we focus so much on the structure, on the things you talked about before. We, we talk about the past. We keep going, rehashing things that haven't worked before. We're frustrated. So how do you avoid the mission drift and have the structure of the organization drive mission versus let mission drift away? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll use an example of how at one point I probably had gotten it wrong. Uh, but then we, in some ways, we, we, we took a hard look at what our organization is to get it right. So as CEO of Lutheran Social Services of the South, we had a mission that said, we will provide help, healing and hope to the children, the elderly and the poor in the name of Jesus Christ. And it was a great message. We had elderly services. We had children's services. We had services for the, the poor, food pantries, et cetera. But the problem with that broad of a mission is, one, it, it was really difficult for us to say no. And we got spread too thin, and we realized we couldn't be all things to all people. So I actually had a, a mid-level millennial uh, staff person come to my office one day and said, can I talk to you? I said, absolutely. And so he came in and he says, you know what? I don't like our mission. And he said, I said, why? He says, it doesn't mean anything to me. And I said, well, what do you want to do? And he says, what I really want to do, because we're so good in children's services, is to break the cycle of child abuse. I'm tired of seeing children being abused. And so we thought, wow, that, I thought this is really interesting conversation we're having. And so I shared this with our other members of our leadership team. And we then shared that conversation with our board of directors. And what we found is that, yes, we're really good at providing children's services. We're getting tired of always serving those who've been abused. How do we actually stop the abuse? We made some hard, uh, the elephant in the room was that we didn't have enough resources to continue to provide retirement communities uh, with the competition in the for-profit world. So as a result of a, a number of strategic conversations, it allowed us to make some really difficult decisions to sell retirement communities to other good providers so that the mission continues, but we no longer have the debt. It allowed us to change our brand to Upbring because in Texas, I think only 2% of the population are Lutheran. And if we truly wanted to break the cycle of child abuse, we needed to invite everybody to join us in this mission. It also allowed us to create an advocacy program. It also allowed us to create uh, a, a research uh, partnership with several universities, including the University of Texas. And we, we also took a deep dive into the research. And if you really want to break the cycle of child abuse, not only do you have to have good social service programs, you have to have good educational programs. And so it allowed us the opportunity to create charter schools, faith-based schools, uh, Head Start programs, understanding that we needed to meld and combine both social service programs and, char and educational programs in order to really make a dent in, in the child abuse. None of that could have happened if we hadn't had these hard, honest conversations about what are we really good at? What can be we best? How can we best serve the communities in which we serve? And um, what is our unique niche and, and what do we need to give up in order to do that? Uh, it was a long journey, It was a, but it was also a worthwhile journey. And it, we were able to do this because we had complete trust in the room, understanding that the only thing we wanted to do was to be um, more impactful in, in our organization. I love that your book has questions for organizations to kind of go through and ask themselves kind of in a setting of discovering some of those 
competitive advantages or your blind spots. So if you were trying to work with an organization that was dealing with some of those blind spots you just mentioned, what are some good questions that they can ask themselves about just what you talked about? How do we get back to what our our strength is, our mission is, that we are better than anybody else at? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what's interesting, Keith, is that uh, inter- from my perspective and my experience, it's really difficult for boards and leadership teams to confront the blind spots. And I think partly because you're doing this day in and day out, and sometimes you don't actually take, you don't actually realize what your blind spots are. And so what I've recommended is that, you know, it can be, be as simple as let's start with talking about what are our strengths, what are our weaknesses, what are our opportunities, what are our threats? And it allows then maybe even bringing in a facilitator so the leadership can be full participants to then highlight what may be their blind spots that um, need to be addressed. So, for example, I was sitting in on a, in a, a two-day board meeting as a facilitator, observer, and it was clear that they had really challenging financial situation. And what was fascinating to me is the first seven hours of their board meeting, nobody brought that up. And finally, I couldn't stand it anymore. So I, I, I brought it up in a nice way and said, you know, I've seen your financial statements. I've seen your balance sheet. Before we talk about all the things we want to do in the future, let's talk about how we're going to wrestle with our financial situation and what we can do strategically, maybe to improve this over the, both the short term and the long term. And, and so to, in some ways, it's just as much of a willingness to confront those, those elephants and, and to have those conversations and to not ignore them. Because I think so often our congregations and our nonprofit organizations tend to ignore them because it's not going to bother you in the next year, but it may in the next few years. Right. So if you're a CEO and you listen to this podcast going, I really need to, to do something. I want to read this book. How would you recommend a CEO on a board process your book if they're going to look at the CEO on the board? Yeah, yeah. So I I think there is value in having a common language. And so what's interesting about board of directors, especially in the nonprofit roles and world and, and also congregational world, is that many board members come to service with absolutely no board experience. And, and so they don't know what to do. They're well-meaning people who want to do the right things, but they really don't know what to do. And so there have been other books that have been published that, you know, you'll, you'll spread around and, and read. But oftentimes, as you probably know, Keith, governance books can be so boring, it's hard to get through them, and you don't quite understand what the author's saying, right? So my whole goal in right. this was to think about that new board member and to think about what a CEO or the organization leader needs from their board and to create really short chapters so that they can read them together and to have that common language and understand that one size does not fit all. Um, and so, you know, I'm not here to sell books, but I do think that there is a benefit to having that common language. Um, and, and so I would suggest, I would start with that. Now it's also, there, there's at the end of the book, a scorecard, uh, that talks about 
how do you know whether or not your organization has a successful governance model and that it is in fact a competitive or missional advantage? And so you look about, you know, you ask yourselves the questions, do you have that healthy trusting relationship with the CEO or with the pastor? Do you have a, a pastor or CEO who's comfortable sharing everything with the board and vice versa? Do you have this shared focus of looking strategically into the future during your meeting time? And do you have that clarity of mission where you, you, you understand what your mission is and also what are the two or three things you need to accomplish in the next few years in order to succeed that in that mission? Uh, I also, the research is also very clear that proactive succession planning is very important. It's a little bit hard in a congregation, but that doesn't mean you can't talk about it. And, and to start preparing and to have those conversations, uh, I think that's really important. And, you know, I'll, at the end of the day, does the pastor, does the leader feel supported by the board? And does the board feel supported by the leader? If you answer all of those questions in the positive, you're, you're off to a pretty good start um, and, and, and you're in the right direction. And then, you know, you talk about, all right. Every organization has that elephant in the room. What's ours? What can we do better? What do we need to change? Uh, how is the external environment changing our internal world? Uh, and to have those forward-looking conversations on a quarterly, on a regular basis, as opposed to maybe once every couple of years. What I love about the succession conversation is I've been on boards where it's on the agenda, where he says, we need to talk about succession and that's where it ends. You know, yes, <laughs> we just, yes. we just say in the future, we should talk about this. But we never <laughs> actually talk about it as a board. You, it's like, so I was like, well, are we going to cover it at some point? <laughs> well, and the best practice that I've seen a, a board that I served on, we had, we had hired a new CEO and absolutely loved her. She was a, a great CEO. But what we told her is we're going to have this conversation about succession planning from the very first month you are part of uh, the organization, because we don't want you to be afraid that, you know, five years from now, when we bring it up, all of a sudden we want you to leave. We don't want you to leave. Right. But you may get hit by a bus. You may get an offer you can't refuse. We as a board have an obligation to do this. And I think congregations have that exact same obligation as well. So let's let's stick there a little bit. So how do you bring up that conversation? How do you prepare a succession play? Because like I said, I've heard us talk about it on boards I've served on. And I'll hear the CEO's like, well, you know, I'm in good health. I don't plan on retiring anytime soon. So we'll address that down the road. So we we never get to it because we keep pretending that it's never gonna happen. Yes. So how do you what's some what's some best practices for how you do something other than just talk about it? Yeah. So I think one best practice would be, and, and this may not make sense for the smallest of organizations, but for every other organization in church it does, is I think we have an obligation for those the leadership underneath the pastor or underneath the CEO to continue to train them and to continue to develop their skill sets. And part of succession planning is to continue to develop skill sets at every level of the organization, even if that individual may not ever want to be a pastor or a CEO. And so I think that's one piece of the puzzle. The other piece of the puzzle is, yeah, we know you don't think you're going to leave in five years, but things happen. And so we need to be prepared and we need to have at a minimum that name in the envelope. If you are to suddenly get sick and unable to serve, who temporarily can take your place and who are people we might want to look at to uh, recruit 
that might be a good fit going forward. You know, it's obviously never the leader's sole decision, but oftentimes they're in a position where they have more names and more uh, understanding of who might be a a good replacement than others. And so um, I would begin with that conversation. And, you know, it also then can lead to conversations about what are we doing right as a board? How can we better serve you as a leader? Uh, do we need to have a conversation about maybe taking a sabbatical to, to help you in terms of renewal process? Um, how can we best support each other? And I, I think that's part of the succession planning conversation as well. Because I've seen a lot of large organizations that did not do that. I've seen large churches where the, 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 the founding pastor stepped down and the succession didn't work and, and you went to two or three others before they found the next person because that did not go well and it was not planned properly. And it's one of the most important things you do can do. So as CEO, one way to judge, I think my success is are they performing even better after I left than when I was there? Right. And so I think as a leader, as a board, you actually have that obligation to ensure that you're going to have good people to replace you when that time does come for you to leave. Now, it doesn't always work, but I've also seen, you know, my old home congregation in St. Louis, Webster Gardens, did an outstanding job of transitioning from a retiring pastor to their associate pastor to senior. And, and everybody was on board. I worked with a congregation in Texas. They did the exact same thing. There are ways to do it. It's, it's, it's not always easy, especially in the, in the congregational world. But what drives me crazy is, so Keith, I was working with a nonprofit organization that had over a thousand employees. And the CEO was convinced that there was not one person in that organization <laughs> who could ultimately replace him. Now, if 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 there's not one in those a thousand people, yeah, right. you're probably hiring the wrong people or you're not training them right and develop them as skill exactly. sets. There's got to be one. <laughs> so, Kurt, this is a fascinating conversation. I could dive into every part of your book, but <laughs> um, what are you most excited about today as you look at the landscape of the nonprofit world and kind of with the response you're getting from your book, what are you most excited about? Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. So on a personal level, what I'm excited about is this ability to help organizations, um, enhance their governance practice and to help them understand that there is a direct tie between governance and strategy and strategy and success. And so if their goal is to have a missional impact within their community, it needs to really start at the governance level. And then we can quickly move to strategy and then we can quickly measure success and, and impact on community. To me, this has been really um, rewarding in that uh, one of the goals that I made a year and a half ago when this book was about to come out is how are we going to measure success with respect to uh, this research? And and the goal in my mind was to have an impact either directly or indirectly on a thousand organizations. And so it's a little bit difficult to measure, but we're measuring it. And so we're tracking who's using the book as a board. We're tracking who which congregations are using it. We're tracking how many people ask us to come and, and to speak to their boards of directors. And the, the neat thing is after about 15 months, we're at about 600. 
And so it feels like we're making an impact in the area in which we think that I think I have an expertise in. And so that's what excites me. That's what gets me up in the morning. That's what makes conversations with people like you so much fun because we're spreading that word that this matters. Because I think the downside to governance is you can get by with bad governance in the short term and it's probably not going to hurt much. But in the long term, the research shows it will. And so it's getting that recognition among the CEOs and the pastors and the leadership team and the boards that this really does matter if you're intent on having long-term success and missional success. I love that. So, Kurt, I love to ask my guests this question. What do you want your legacy to be? <laughs> you know, part of me, Keith, doesn't like that question because it, makes, it turns <laughs> in and makes it about me, right? And, and I, I don't right. like that. But so if, if I were to die tomorrow, what I would hope people were to say is that we trusted him, that he had integrity, that he was a good father, that he was a good husband, and that the organizations that he either, you know, had a full-time or a part-time role with are stronger today as a result of his involvement than they would have been without him. I think that would be what I would hope people would say about me when I'm gone. I like that. Anything I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? Oh, wow. You know, what, what, what I see, yes. One of the things that I didn't talk about in terms of what the research says that is so important in boards of directors of any organization, of any congregation, is in addition to having appropriate diversity for your own organization and congregation, and that's going to mean different things to different people, right? In in your own church, you're going to have members of your church, and that's going to limit maybe your diversity. However, it, it, you can still have diversity in terms of generation. You can still have diversity in terms of various different skill sets, et cetera. What the research is more and more clear about, whether you're talking about a board member or about a leader or about a pastor, is just as important, if not more important than skill sets, is emotional intelligence, emotional maturity. And so the question becomes when you're recruiting board members, when you're recruiting that next pastor, that next leader, is how are you going to determine whether or not this individual has an emotional intelligence and emotional maturity? Because that is so important today in terms of leadership. And it's something that I think we haven't quite realized, but the Corn Ferries, the Spencer Stewart's, the big search firms for executives these days are saying that this is actually more important than any skill set or experience or wherever you went to college is. This is what you have to look and test. And so to do that, you may want to take them out to, to dinner or to lunch, to see them in various different settings, to ask about maybe their experience in, in other boards, because I've seen one or two board members poison an entire board, one or two leaders poison an entire organization. And it's not because they didn't have the skills. It's because they just didn't have that emotional intelligence. Well, that's a good point. I, I've seen that too. And <laughs> And, it, and it's it's hard to correct a bad hire. It's yes. also hard to correct the wrong appointment or approval of a board member. Yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and what's interesting to me is almost all of us think we have emotional intelligence, but the research actually shows that only about thirty five percent of us do. 
And so it really is important to kind of flesh that out. Yeah, definitely. So, Kurt, where can people find your book, The CEO on the Board, The Art of Nonprofit Governance as a Competitive Advantage, and connect with you on social media? Yeah, thank you for asking. Uh, the book's available on Amazon.com and CPH.org. Uh, so both of those are great places to go. Uh, and uh, connect with me on social media. I, I do most of my professional stuff on LinkedIn, uh, Kurt Sensky. Uh, but also, if you want to know a little bit about my private life and personal life, uh, feel free to connect me on Facebook as well. Those are the two that I primarily use. So Facebook or LinkedIn. Well, Kurt, thanks so much. It was a great conversation. Just talking about this is such a critical part because nonprofits typically are designed to make an impact in the world. And when they don't function well or the board hinders the mission of it, it diminishes the impact they can have. Whether that's a church or a nonprofit, you know, you you found it with a mission and a goal to make the world a better place. So having a governance that helps you do that and accomplish that effectively is so critical. So thank you for taking the time to do the research and to write this and share your insights with, with the world. Keith, it's my pleasure. And uh, that is why we exist, right? Is to make that impact, that missional impact in our communities and uh, to f fulfill our calling. So thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Kurt. Have a blessed new year. Likewise. You too, Keith. Blessings on your ministry. Thanks for listening to Becoming Bridge Builder. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help support the podcast, please subscribe and share it with others. Post about it on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at bkeithhaney and on Getter and Twitter at RevHeadpin or on his website at alightbreaksthrough.org. Thanks again and tune in next time.